I'm Urban Hannon, the editor of The Josias, and this is The Josias Podcast, a conversation today about our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Insert the obligatory head bow here. Welcome to all of our listeners. Welcome especially to our benefactors on Patreon. And welcome today to my two guests, Father Edmund Baldstein and Father Gregory Pine. As I'm sure everyone already knows, Pater Edmund is a Cistercian monk of the Abbey of Heiligenkreuz in Austria. I've visited, it's beautiful. He's a professor at both Heiligenkreuz and the International Theological Institute. And he is also the editor emeritus of the Josias. Or I guess, following our White House press secretary, do I say editor emeritus now? How do we do that? <laughs> Potter, great to have you here. Yeah, great to be here. And uh, I'm so glad that you're my successor, Urban. The Josiah is in good hands. Here's hoping. All right. I kind of hope none of our listeners needs an introduction to Father Gregory Pine either. Longtime friend, first-time guest. But just in case, Father Gregory is a priest of the Dominican province of St. Joseph, which is the eastern province in the U.S. He has degrees from the Franciscan University of Steubenville and the Pontifical Faculty of the Dominican House of Studies. He's currently pursuing his doctorate at the University of Freiburg in Switzerland, a degree that it looks like he's going to finish up right before I start mine with the same faculty, which I'm trying not to take personally. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Father, but I think he's also the creator of the Aquinas 101 series on the Thomistic Institute's YouTube page. True story? That is a true story. All right. Father Gregory, thanks for joining us. My joy. Thanks for having me. All right, Father Gregory, I'll circle back to you in just a sec, because I expect once we actually get into this, you're going to end up driving a lot of this discussion today. But first, Potter Edmund, I have to tell you, it feels absolutely bizarre to introduce you on this podcast. <laughs> I feel like I'm welcoming you to your own house here. So as you say, obviously, this is my first episode as editor, my first episode as host. So before we start, I wanted to just check in and ask... How's it been? How's it been adjusting to the contemplative dimension, to being a contemplative member of this expanded Josias ministry we now have? <laughs> well, you know, I still wear a white cassock. <laughs> <laughs> our friend Pat Smith has already announced that he's founding the uh, Edmund Vacantis. So, anyway. <laughs> no, I'm really grateful you're here. I'm glad that. For my first time as host, I'll get to have you here with me. Um, I don't know. Does that make this episode kind of like our Lumen Fidei? Is this the encyclical <laughs> where right, I right. get to still lean on my predecessor a little bit and then eventually take the reins by myself? It will be fun. We'll see. Maybe some of our more contrarian listeners will. It's a good, good encyclical, Lumen Fidei. I, I agree. Well, <laughs> Gregory, what's up? Um, not much. I was thinking about you a lot for the last couple of weeks because I was actually on a trip here uh, with my parents. They came over and visited the one time that they've been over here while I've studied abroad. Uh, and my dad has always wanted to ski over here. So we headed up to the Swiss Alps and there's unfortunately very little snow, but we had a good time. But I was thinking about you because the last time I was in the Swiss Alps, mm. it's possible we were together. Mm-hmm. So we've gotten to do a few good trips over here um, during our time in Europe. Got another on the horizon coming up. But I have to say, 
as much fun as I've had with you on those adventures. This time it was nice to have skis on my feet <laughs> on actual slopes as opposed to uh, snowshoes in some potentially avalanche territory. Yeah, so I try, um, not on a weekly basis, on a weekly basis, I try to go hiking. That usually ends up like two or three times a month. But I would say on a bi-monthly basis, I usually try to put myself in a terrible situation so that way I remember what it's like um, to have an irascible power. Um, because otherwise, <laughs> you know, we just kind of get lulled to sleep by the comfort of modern existence. And so, yeah, I like to hike up mountains to just such a point where it becomes impossible to either advance or regress so that way I will be just thrown headlong uh, into a kind of abandonment to divine providence, which will usually involve us descending into a parallel valley and then leveraging all kinds of transportation options for the succeeding two hours so as simply to return to the point from which we started, which is like a kind of parable of life. So it's good. It's very good. No, it was a great time. All right. So let's get down to our topic for today. When I was trying to decide what I wanted to talk about for our first episode here, um, I figured out pretty quick that the best way to start my editorship would be with God. Safe bet. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. And specifically, I thought, it's true. Final end. Specifically today, I thought we'd focus on God, the son, the eternal word made flesh for our salvation, right? The ancient of days who became the babe in the manger. And I thought that starting with our blessed Lord would be a good place to begin because it is precisely because of Christ's incarnation and his founding of the perfect society that is the church that our project of the Josias exists in the first place. Integralism or our whole theological political project is a response to the fact that since Good Friday or Pentecost or whenever you want to date it to, we Christians belong to not just one, but two irreducible perfect societies, one temporal and one spiritual, the church. So if we want to get that spiritual society right, or therefore the right relationship, the harmonious ordering between it and our various polities, we had better get our Lord himself right. And when I thought about talking about our blessed Lord, Father Gregory, I knew there was no one better to ask to join us than you. Wow. So I thought I'd start. <laughs> <laughs> you misspoke and misthought, my friend. There we go. Uh, I thought I'd start by having you talk to us a little just about what you're working on these days, because I know that our Lord features very prominently in the project <laughs> that you've devoted the last couple of years of your life to. Um, and I thought that might be a good entry point for us talking about Christ Jesus together. Okay. Um, well, the thumbnail sketch, ah, that's not true. The uh, three minute and 12 second sketch is I'm writing about Christological exemplarity as a kind of soteriological paradigm, which sounds like I chose the four fanciest words that will appear in my entire thesis and just foregrounded them so as to impress all listeners, which is exactly what I did. Um, Excellent. So uh, the first chapter is, it's five chapters. I just finished my last one. So I'm over here just dancing. You just can't see because I'm only dancing with my legs, which are currently under my desk. Um, so it's five chapters. The first chapter is um, the kind of problematic. A lot of people, when they talk about Thomistic soteriology, they just start with Tertia Parr's question 48, which concerns the efficiency of the passion or the efficacy of the passion, depending on how you render it. 
But I argue that that limits the discourse in two key ways, namely it's limits to efficiency and the passion, which isn't what St. Thomas means to communicate by soteriology. It's supposed to include all of the deeds and sufferings of Christ insofar as they're all saving. And it's supposed to include a fuller causal complement. <clears throat> but my like kind of cute move, if such a move can be described as cute without indignity, uh, my cute move is to say, even when approaching question 48 of the Tertia Pars, it directs your gaze to precisely what I would like to communicate in the subsequent chapters. So that question goes through merit, satisfaction, sacrifice, redemption, whether Christ is fittingly called redeemer, and then efficiency itself. <clears throat> and at each point along the way, I say that these articles raise questions which um, make it such that we need to bring in the other mysteries of the life of Christ and then the other causal considerations in order to do justice to him. So like merit, for instance, just to take one example, merit is... Um, Right, So by virtue of a divine ordination, God makes it such that he, re he rewards those acts performed in grace or you know, charity and obedience. Um, and when we think about it, or when St. Thomas teaches it in question 34, like article 2 and 3, he says that Christ will have merited at his conception, given that he enjoys a quasi-infinite charity, he will have merited a quasi-infinite reward proportionate thereunto. So then the question is, what is the what is the point of subsequent merits? Why does Christ add infinity to infinity to infinity as if he were heaping whatever the opposite of coals are on our head? Uh, blessings, I suppose. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so just like something simple like that makes it such that we have to account for the narrative integrity of Christ's life. And then the subsequent chapters go through instrumental efficient causality, exemplar causality. The mysteries of the life of Christ is kind of like dynamic exemplar instruments or instrumental causes. And then I zoom in on the ascension because it's weird and because weird things often reveal weird conclusions. Uh, but the whole point of the, the thesis, I suppose, is to say that salvation isn't some third thing. It's not like we're here, God's there. He's like, let me cook up a nice little salvation recipe for you and serve it up hot. He just gives us himself in the way that's best accommodated to our recognition and reception of the same. And so the mysteries of the life of Christ are the way in which God chooses to pass the divine light of his interior life through the prism of Christ's, you know, created experience, as it were, um, so that we, in beholding it, can then be assimilated to it. Um, so it ends up being very homiletic, <clears throat> and it ends up just being a great privilege to think about it and to write about it for the past couple of years. Fantastic. So, who's, sorry, who's your director in Fubur? My director is Father Gilles Emery. Oh, wonderful. Excellent. Great theologians. He is indeed. Indeed, indeed. And also the person whose car we might have borrowed on the day that we got stuck in the Alps, uh, which then wouldn't start for a few tries. But that's okay. We're very great. That was, well, if it didn't start for a few tries, it was him. But we've had that subsequently replaced. So the spark plugs, um, which are the bougie de démarrage, which I learned at the auto shop the other day, um, <laughs> just a further confirmation that English is an exceedingly practical language. It's just like, we want to communicate something. It's like, throw some words on the wall, send it. Um, so we, uh, yeah, we replaced that. So have no fear. All subsequent iterations of these hiking trips will be just as perilous, but far more comfortable when it comes to the automobile. Fantastic. Um, so with regard to the thesis, is it fair to say that what you want to communicate at least in part is that everything that Christ did, everything Christ underwent during his life 
is directly relevant to our salvation, not just by making our salvation happen, but also by setting out the way in which our salvation is going to happen or the kind of shape of our salvation in some way? Yep, that's that's exactly it. Um, and I think that it has very practical consequences for like the mystical life, for instance, which are consequences that Abbot Columba Marmion really tapped into or yeah. Matthias Schieben. You know, it's like, okay, you want to be a mystic? Consider the life of Christ. And by consider, it's not just um, prayerfully uh, muse on it from a healthy abstract distance. It's to say that, that those mysteries are applied by faith and sacrament. Um, so in the context of prayer, sacramental reception of Holy Communion, good use of the sacrament of confession, you know, penance as prescribed by church ritual, et cetera, et cetera. It's like the mysteries themselves are applied, which have their proper integrity, which have their, like you said, shape, or formality, and that formality is indicative. So I, I, I want to say something comparable to what the first six ecumenical councils said about Christ's human constitution, right? So he's God and he's man. And when we say he's man, that means soul and body, which is to say intellect, will, passions, co-assumed defects, which are not in conflict with the campaign of salvation. So you can see that as the kind of vertical um, integrity, as it were. I want to insist on upon a kind of horizontal integrity. So like all that he chose to do and suffer um, has something to manifest and communicate, you know, of, of salvation. Insofar as, you know, within the depths of the divine wisdom, this is way in, this is the way in which God saw fits to tell forth, right? And ultimately to render what it is that we in recognizing and receiving are, are transformed by. Um, so, yeah, like the fathers of the church, I mean, the scriptures tap into this, obviously, and it's from the scriptures that we ultimately take our point of departure. But like the association of certain mysteries with certain fruits, like you can think about the way that St. Paul talks about baptism as a burial, uh, you know, a kind of sepulchral nature to the waters of baptism from which we are then uh, revivified, resurrected. So like this idea that the sacraments themselves have a kind of logic, which is breathed into them by the mysteries of the life of Christ. Like it's, we want to follow up on those, um, that, that kind of revelation. And the fathers of the church make these very beautiful associations, which St. Thomas is downstream of. Could you say a little bit more about um, how you're using the, the St. Thomas's doctrine of causality, which is very influenced, of course, by, uh, by Aristotle, and, but also to some extent by Neoplatonism. You talked there about, right at the beginning, about agent causality and about exemplar causality. It might be helpful for our listeners if you just spell out a little bit what those words mean and how agent and exemplar, for example, are related. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, in the background, you have Aristotle's four causes with which, you know, some people will be familiar, but maybe not. So maybe the one that's closest to our sensibilities would be material causality, which is the stuff out of which. Um, so when you ask why, you know, like Father Gregory, why are you so prone to sports injuries? You know, it's like, well, I love a stock <laughs> of Barry and Regina Pine, so just weak. Um, and then, you know, the kind of complementary principle to that is formal causality, which is what makes the thing to be what it is. It's like, Father Gregory, like, why are you so contrarian? Well, I was given a mind and a heart, and both are just deeply embroiled in all the complexities of our post-lapsarian state, and I just can't abide when anyone tells me to do anything. That's religious life. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm a human being, right? This soul informs this body, makes me to be what I am. 
And then you referenced agent causality, sometimes called efficient causality. It's like, what, what is it that brought the thing to be? It's like, Father Gregory, you know, you have a, you have a dent on your forehead. How did that happen? Well, I played a soccer game about nine years ago. I went for a head ball with all of my very considerable sporting talent. And, um, yeah, I went, I went head to head with another individual who cracked mine open and came away unscathed. Um, and then the last is final causality, the purpose for which like father Gregory, uh, like <laughs> what could you possibly find a pedible about writing a doctorate? It seems like three years of self-imposed grueling penance. Uh, well, yeah, maybe that's the case, but also I get to think about the mysteries of the life of Christ and then communicate them subsequently. And it might help me gain entry into certain academic settings, which I wouldn't otherwise have entry to. So those are the four ways in which Aristotle answers that question, why? And then exemplar causality is a kind of variation on formal causality. So formal causality usually speaks to, you know, the shape which takes, kind of takes root or takes form. <laughs> he uses the word to define the word. Fatal flaw um, it, it, in the thing itself, right? So it's intrinsic, whereas the exemplar formal cause is extrinsic. So an example that, that St. Thomas will often use as his descriptions is that of an artist or an artisan who conceives of what he intends to produce before producing it. And so the notion of what it is that he will produce, it's uh, that's what we're talking about with an exemplar formal cause or an exemplar cause. So then when St. Thomas talks about God's causality vis-a-vis -vis the world, <clears throat> this would be like Prima Par's question 45, he'll say that God is the efficient cause or agent cause of creation. He's its final cause insofar as all creation is designed or intended to return to him unto the praise of his glory. But he is also the exemplar formal cause of creation insofar as God, his, his notions of how created things can participate his boundless divine life. He is himself the pattern of what takes shape or what takes form in reality. Um, <clears throat> so when thinking about the mysteries of the life of Christ, I'm kind of applying this divine threefold causality to Christ's human operation, which is made the instrument of it. Um, so Christ's human operation has a way of like modalizing the divine causality. I suppose that's an overly fancy word, and which usually means that I myself don't understand it. I was just using it so that somebody else might. Um, you know, he he shapes, as it were, or he kind of channels the divine causality. And in doing so, it assumes uh, the contours of his humanity as a way to commend the salvation which he communicates to us, to our, again, recognition and reception. And is it right to say, Father, that we call this exemplar causality, we insist on this being an extrinsic formal cause, because if God were to be the intrinsic formal cause of the universe, then we wouldn't be theists at all, we'd be pantheists? Correcto. Yes, CF Prima Pars, question three, article eight, on the world soul, which is a kind of a wild passage. Um, but, uh, yeah, a good one to read, especially for those who interest themselves in divine simplicity, which topic, by the way, a lot of people are interested in, which fascinates me, even atheists. I'm like, why are you living in this suppositional universe where like, if God is, then he is not simple. It's like, holy smokes, shouldn't you care about something else? But Hey, kudos. I guess it's better than other things. I, I don't know what, but it is. Um, so yes, it, he is not, he is not the world soul. God does not enter into composition with creation. 
uh, and there are a variety of arguments that we could give, but I think that should be pretty clear insofar as pantheism or panentheism is in our is in our bag. Yeah, but having exemplarity there, having this extrinsic formal causality still makes it to where God isn't merely separate from us. He's not merely acting on us from outside and drawing us to himself at the end, though of course he's doing both of those things. But he also is the kind of pattern um, after which we are and after which we operate. So it kind of um, gives us a nice middle way between pantheism and, I don't know, deism or something, something where what we are has just absolutely nothing to do with what God is. So we get to resemble God, we get to be modeled after God, because what else is there to possibly be modeled after than the fullness of being himself, the good himself. But on the other hand, there is a real distinction between me and God. Um, and if there weren't, we would have a very different religion, which yep. for starters would be false. So that would be bad. Um, okay. One other kind of cause that you mentioned early on, I think you said you have a full chapter on this is instrumental causality. Mm -hmm. So you said that Christ is our exemplar cause in everything that he does and everything he suffers. Um, so he's the kind of pattern of our salvation, but what's instrumental causality about? I assume here we're looking a little bit to Aristotle, but even more to some people who developed this, maybe St. John Damascene in the East. Um, and yeah, others coming into St. Thomas. What, uh, what does that add to this picture? Yeah. So um, one thing that I'm trying to do is kind of hold together all of these causalities in Christ and to say that Christ exercises you know, a theandric causality, a divino human causality with these different facets. Right? So one ex Got to tag that. Yeah, right. So theandric, divino human, theos, andros, um, God, man, that, that particular word comes from pseudo Dionysius in his, what, fourth epistle to Caius. Um, but the basic idea is that Christ is the cause of salvation as God and as man under different formalities, but cum communioni alterius, you know, so like there's one divine, excuse me, there's one divino human operation in Christ seen from one vantage. And then there are distinct operations, namely a divine and a human seen from another vantage. So like St. Thomas introduces his question on Christ's operation. So Tertius Parts question 19, de unitate operationis Christi, right? So which is fascinating because that's not a typical move, especially downstream of, you know, monothelitism, diathelitism, because people get nervous when you say anything after the Sixth Ecumenical Council that could sound like you're collapsing some distinct aspect of Christ's humanity in a way that could be interpreted as whatever, you know, like Eutychian. Um, so it's cool because St. Thomas really wants to insist on the sublimity and the intimacy of the association of Christ's human operation with his divine operation. And one of the resources that he has to do so is instrumental causality, specifically the instrumental causality of the Lord's sacred humanity. So instrumentality is um, a particular expression of efficient causality. And an instrumental cause is... So a subordinated mode of causality. So it would be subordinated to principle efficient causality. Um, but the instrument has its own proper operation. Otherwise, you wouldn't take it to hand. Okay, so like we use saws for sawing because we can't saw with our own hands or with a fish. Uh, we need saws for such tasks. 
And um, so there's something about the instrument which commends itself to be taken up in this particular process, uh, which is to say it's proper operation. But then that proper operation is in being assumed by the principal cause, it attains to a kind of participated operation such that it makes a genuine and then here St. Thomas just uses the word operator dispositive. It, it dis, you know it dispositively operates in service of the principal cause so as to bring about some end in communion, causal communion with the principal cause. So like a mundane example is, you know, people care about what type of pen they use because uh, they might think more or less that it reflects on them or that it, yeah, is somehow significant. I'm not weighing in on this particular question of like ballpoint pens versus what are the other ones? Oh, maybe I just did weigh in by virtue. Of, I don't know what the other Found ones are. Pen. Yeah, Found Potter's pen. weighing in by pulling one out of his pocket. <laughs> I don't know if you can see me because I can't, I can't see you. The video is frozen for me on your side, but okay. I'm holding up a fountain pen here. Bingo. I can see you. <laughs> The fountain pen. Very yeah, good. so I've got like, my Pilot G two hundred seven here for all okay. the fans. All right, <laughs> let's see. I for all those following, I'm I've got my UPMC Cancer Centers pen, which I think maybe came from Pittsburgh sometime in the last fourteen years. Um, bingo. So <laughs> uh, I I once carried um, a fountain pen in my breast pocket, but then it exploded, and um, as you might imagine, given the Dominican habit, didn't go well. So. Um, but like, you know, the, the pen that you use makes a contribution to the final product and there is a greater elegance. There is a greater kind of mastery, uh, that's communicated by a fountain pen. Like, you know, when somebody has taken the time to write a letter with a fountain pen and that shows a degree of care, a degree of solicitude, a kind of, yeah, a kind of humanizing effect as it were. Um, so, so with our Lord's sacred humanity, uh, it's, not that God needs an instrument in order to achieve his purposes because he can achieve his purposes by whatsoever means he deploys or directly, as it were, without means. Um, but he takes to himself the sacred humanity basically on account of our weakness and woundedness so as to make it such that salvation is most appealing, most evident, um, most kind of ostensive, richly textured. You can describe it in a billion ways. And... And so it's not because of his need or his indigence that he assumes an instrument. It's because of our need and our indigence that he assumes an instrument as a way by which to accommodate salvation. And so like you think about the passion, for instance, um, St. Thomas will ask the question, what's the best way to get somebody to love you? Well, you show them how much you love them. And what do we have in the passion? We have the most excellent example of love ever told forth. Um, and so on the cross, we see, you know, how good God is, how worthwhile humanity is, how bad sin is, how rich, you know, Christ's love for us is. It's, it's just all told forth in this hyper-concentrated and uh, excellent fashion. And so the instrumentality of the Lord's sacred humanity works towards that end by its proper operation, which assumes a kind of participated status such that it can kind of canalize or modalize the divine causality and bring it to bear on us in a way that conduces best to our salvation. Father, how does that compare to the sacraments of Christ, which obviously for those following along in their sumas at home is what happens after we finish with the, uh, the treatment of Christ in himself, starting at question 60, if memory serves. Uh, we jump into the sacramental order, and for a few questions there, we get all the sacraments, the sacraments in general up through about 65. 
And then we start treating the sacraments um, one by one until, of course, St. Thomas had his great mystical experience on or around the Feast of St. Nicholas in 1273, math, yes, 1273, uh, and then ceased to write um, any more on that. So we don't have the, the completion of that, but that's where St. Thomas ends up ending the Summa. Um, and he seems to link that directly to the section prior, the section on our Savior, um, and explains the relationship between these by kind of different kinds of instrument, different kinds of instrumental cause. So what's the difference between Christ's sacred humanity on the one hand and the saving waters of baptism on the other? Yeah. Um, so in the tradition, you have distinctions drawn among uh, conjoined and separated instruments and then among animate and non-animated instruments animate and non-animate instruments. I should have said at one point too that you're right, a lot of it does come from Aristotle, but a lot of it comes from the properly Christian tradition with like St. Athanasius and St. Cyril of Alexandria being big persons who contributed to the conversation, St. Maximus the Confessor and Pseudo-Dionysius, and then you're right, St. John Damascene is the kind of great compiler of the East, um, and it's, uh, it's it comes by way of that tradition um, with like this mention of organ on deitatis or instrumentum divinitatis. Um, but in this particular setting, our Lord's sacred humanity is the most sublime and the most intimate of instruments, most sublime in that it's he takes to himself a human nature and in its integrity. Although, depending on how you read Michael Gorman's recent book on the metaphysics of the hypostatic union, maybe we should say a human reality. Um, hard to say there. Um, and then you have also, so I said the, 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 the most sublime, but also the most intimate because it's conjoined. Um, so you have examples of conjoined instruments in the ancient tradition where they'll talk about like a hand as an instrument of the individual. Uh, but here we're talking about a human nature united hypostatically to the Godhead. So most sublime, most intimate, and then all subsequent instrumentality in the Christian dispensation. So like the instrumentality of the church, the instrumentality of the sacraments, which would be the classic place that St. Thomas discusses it. Also the instrumentality of, you know, preaching, the instrumentality of sacramental ministration, the, like the, the ministers themselves, etc., uh, kind of flows from or can be thought of as an extension of the instrumentality of the Lord's sacred humanity. But the sacraments, whereas our Lord's humanity is conjoined, they are, you know, separate. And whereas the Lord's humanity is animate, they are non-animate. So there's, there's less of an intimacy, less of a sublimity, um, and there's a kind of sense of like mediation downstream. So it's typical to talk about like the Lord's sacred humanity as the conjoined instrument. And then Father Benoit Dominique de la Sujol argues for the church as the adjunct instrument. And then for, you know, the sacraments, we would say a separated instrument. So that's a typical way in which to conceive of the kind of great chain of instrumentality in our ecclesial sacramental life. What would, so if the conjoined instrument, Christ's sacred humanity is like a hand and the separated instrument, like the sacraments, um, or like a pen in the hand, or a saw in the hand, or whatever you like, um, where it's still the primary agent acting through his conjoined hand, Christ's sacred humanity, and then through um, some separated instrument, the waters of baptism, the oils of anointing, etc. What's uh, what's Father Benoit Dominique de la Sejoule's adjunct instrument? What's the analog for that in the natural order? That's a good question. I don't remember what he says in the article or whether he answers the question directly. What occurs to me first is that 
what we're probably looking at is we talk about the church as a moral person, and certainly it's it's populated by persons. So I think it might be appropriate to speak of it as an animate separated instrument, which the pagan tradition is familiar with, because Aristotle, when talking about animates, animate instruments, he doesn't have in mind the possibility of the hypostatic union for understandable reasons. Um, but he does think about slaves because he's always thinking about slaves. So his example <laughs> of an animate instrument is the slave. Uh, so maybe we change the word slave. We kind of like reverse translate it to Greek. We say doulos, and then we retranslate it to English. We say servants. We think of ourselves as a kind of Marian church. And then we say something along those lines. Okay, cool. Uh, one one feature of, of causality that St. Thomas talks about, uh, for example, in the Prima Pars, when he's talking about chains of causality to come to a first mover, a first agent cause, and so on, is that the cause is simultaneous with the effect, that the cause is only a cause as, uh, as long as it's causing. So if I'm cutting the wood with a saw, I'm uh, the principal cause, the saw is a kind of instrumental cause, but I can only be causing that cutting of the wood as long as I'm there, moving my hand, as it were. Um, if you're looking at uh, what you're saying a moment ago about the, the life of Christ, in what sense can I say that something that Christ did in his earthly life, uh, say, dying on the cross, in what sense is that a cause of my being saved now if he died, you know, way back when, and I'm living now? Yeah, you've asked a good question in keeping with the German-speaking Benedictine tradition of reflection on this point. So, Dom Otto Kassel <laughs> thanks you from his blessed repose. Right. Um, yeah, so this is, this is a huge question in the 20th century, especially in liturgical studies or sacramentology, the Mysterian Gegenwart question, uh, like how are the mysteries made present. Right. And you have different approaches. That, that, that unfolds largely in terms of sacramentology and liturgiology, over which I have next to no competence. I know how it, how it unfolds, though, in the Thomistic ghetto where I live. Um, and the big question is how do you leverage the resources that St. Thomas provides? So he backs the Lord's exercise of instrumental causality on the basis of the divine power. So in virtute divinitatis, um, or in virtute divina. And when he says that he makes appeal, a lot of authors will say to the divine eternity or to the divine immensity. Um, and so usually when people make appeal to the divine eternity, they're pulling a fast one, which is irresponsible and lets them, as it were, get away with all kinds of nonsense. But here we just have some kind of principle, some kind of divine attribute in the background, which gives God access to all times and places for which we know that to be the case. And that God has the prerogative to wield instruments insofar as he sees fit to do so, and that he can continue to wield our Lord's sacred humanity subsequent to the incarnation within the flow of time, because efficiency can't act outside of the flow of time. So you can't cause by efficiency what was before the thing itself was created. Right. Um, whereas with merit, that does not seem to be the case, except some people will argue that because merit is referred or is reduced to a certain efficiency, maybe it does, but I don't, that's more contentious. Um, so then the question is, how is it that these mysteries are operative? And there are two big camps in the Thomistic literature 
uh, and they draw from St. Thomas's discussion in Tertiary Par's Question 50, Article 6, on the death of Christ, whether the death of Christ causes our salvation in fieri or in facto esse, which is to say, in its process of unfolding or in its having been done and the fact of its having been done. Um, and he'll say in that, it, you know, it causes infieri, but then that language is subsequently appropriated and used to describe a much broader phenomenon. And so there are a lot of commentators downstream of Cajetan and John of St. Thomas who say that the mysteries, what they effectively do is they alter the Lord's sacred humanity um, and they render it or dispose it to act in subsequent times and places as a fitting instrument of the communication of salvation marked by these mysteries. So they're thinking about it more as you know, altering, as it were, or shaping the agent. Whereas there are other voices in the tradition, and it seems like they, this is the scholarly consensus at this point, and there are also, you know, commentators on whom they can rely for their interpretation, that no, there is a sense in which um, the mysteries themselves continue to cause as instrumental causes, um, and that they attain to some sufficiently thick metaphysical status in their performance, which doesn't like make it so that they're historically in all times and all places. They're historically in one place, but that their power can be dispensed in all times and all places. Um, and yeah, so I think that, that this is like, they start with just textual studies and St. Thomas's language where he talks about like resurrectio sua or Christus resurgens as the cause of subsequent resurrection in the members of his body, the church. So I think it's like, it's a kind of textual sensitivity. It's a kind of linguistic sensitivity, but it also seems like metaphysically to be more faithful to what St. Thomas envisioned as he describes it. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the side that you incline towards. I'm inclining towards it right now. Yeah. Do you have a view, Potter? Do you have a, an inclination between those views? Uh, I think, well, not really. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you mentioned Columba Marmion a moment ago. Maybe you could say a little bit about him because uh, he has that great book on the mysteries of Christ. And it seems to me that he he very much takes that second view as well. The, yeah. um, but talks about how it sort of liturgically mediated that causality. Yeah. I might actually have to punt to you for Columba Marmion. I haven't read Columba Marmion. I just uh, oh, you should. He's he's really worth it. Okay, yeah. I just mentioned him insofar as it's when people read about the mysteries in the twentieth century, they'll often read Sheban or Marmion. It seems. Mm. So, but um, Marmion, I prefer him to Odo Castle, whom you also mentioned, um, because Marmion is more, is more Thomistic. He he was okay. professor of philosopher of uh, philosophy before he entered the monastery. Oh, nice. And, you know, stuff. Whereas Odo Kazala is a little bit murky, I find. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful to read, but sometimes uh, in need of a certain compliment from a more worked out tradition. Right. Very good. Um, Father, I'm wondering if you can say something about the way in which Christ in all of this is the instrument of our salvation, is the exemplar of our salvation, not just for me as an isolated private individual, but also for all of us together commonly uh, and the way in which this pertains to the common good. Because um, one thing that I know our uh, 
our publication here and your good order, your good province of your order, definitely shares in common is an admiration for um, and kind of fidelity to Charles DeConnick and the Laval School on the common good. Um, so in what way would it be a mistake to just look at the acta and passa, um, the actions and undergoings of Christ's life, as a model for me in some kind of isolated individualistic sense? And how can we understand those as certainly directed to that, directed to my person, um, but directed to my person, not just alone, but most especially and even better for all of us together for the church? Yeah, um, there are a lot of wonderful resources in St. Thomas with which to respond to the question. So the one thing, and I mentioned it already, is St. Thomas has a kind of formulaic expression, and I think it's in De Veritate 27, Article 4, where he says that, um, like, basically, this is applied to us, spiritualiter sacrament, nope, spiritualiter fidei et corporaliter sacramentis. Um, so, like, it's applied to us spiritually by faith and sacramentally, excuse me, corporally by the sacraments. So there's this sense in which, like, the application of the mysteries is something that takes um, it takes root through the ordinary means of Christian existence. Um, and when St. Thomas describes the manner of transmission, uh, he always reposes on um, the mystical body. So returning to Tertiopar's question 48, at each step along the way, uh, basically in each of those first four articles where he describes these soteriological paradigms, which kind of begin their consideration of the communication of salvation with the Lord's sacred humanity. He always talks about the mystical body. And it seems like on the one hand, he's trying to root the efficacy in the Godhead. I mean, where else would you root it? Uh, cause, cause God saves. <laughs> uh, but then he's also trying to like, he's trying to root the commun the transmission of this salvation, um, in some solidarity, which Christ has with us. And when he does so, he appeals inevitably, to the mystical body. Uh, so in merit, I think it's like in response to the first objection there, he just goes, boom, head and members. And then it's in the question on satisfaction. It, it also features in where he talks about, you know, Christ in the church uh, or Christ as head of the church, uh, or excuse me, the church as the members of Christ as like una persona mystice. Um, and then that type of language occurs again with respect to sacrifice. I don't know so much directly in the article on sacrifice as by kind of cross-references to his treatments of priesthood at question 22 and of mediation in question 26, where again, he's making mention there. And then in redemption, it comes up as well. I don't know so much in 48 article four, but in like, I want to say it's like question 49 article one, just making constant appeal to the mystical body. And so there you referred back to question seven and eight, where he's talking about the grace of Christ and that grace Christ's habitual grace, just seen from the vantage of the way it's transmitted to the church, we call capital grace or the grace of headship, because the grace that we get is a grace that comes to us by way of incorporation. Uh, so again, not a third thing. It's just God communicating his divine life in the way that's accommodated to us. You know, I, I said accommodated twice, but uh, uh, communicating his divine life in a way um, that we can receive because we're creatures. So it's going to need to be in a created register. God's uncreated. And so that's what the accommodation will typically entail. Um, so when you're talking about it in those terms, in terms of the mystical body, you're always talking about, yeah, a communal dimension or a communitarian dimension uh, to this type of transmission. So is it right then to say that 
it's mine. This salvation, this um, Christological salvation is mine exactly in as much as I am a part of us. It's mine in as much as I'm part of ours. And it's ours exactly in as much as we're part of him. We're incorporated as members into his head. Um, I don't know why I was brought back to that iconic scene from, I think it's, po- is it Pocahontas where he's like, and it's mine, boys, mine for the taking. Um, <laughs> um, orphan, the seven dwarfs, Snow White and the seven dwarfs, in a mine, in a mine. All right, so many references that apply in this context. Um, so uh, I don't know exactly how I would phrase it, but I'm thinking also of the way that St. Thomas describes the mystical body in question eight, and he describes who pertains to it. And he has this sense like, of gradation or hierarchy. So obviously those who pertain best to it are the elect in heaven. And then the elect on earth, presently in a state of grace, the elect on earth, not yet in a state of grace, those not elect on earth, uh, perhaps in a state of grace, perhaps not, and then the damned in hell. Um, So there's different ways in which we could say one is potentially a member of the body of Christ. But you know, looking back to First Timothy 2, 4, God desires that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And we don't admit Augustinian limitations in our reading of that particular text. All right. So it's a pretty thick affirmation. Um, and so in the subsequent conciliar clarifications, if one is saved, it is by God's predestinating grace. If one is damned, it is by his free rejection thereof. Um, so his there being the damned. His, it's yeah, by the damned, the damned individual. It's by yep, the, exactly the damned, yes. refusing God. If yep. it's damned. Um, yeah. and yeah, that that wasn't clear. Thank you. Um, so, um, so <laughs> when it comes from Calvinism clear, on this podcast, yeah, cheers. By um, uh, ambiguous antecedent. Yeah, just when I start talking, sometimes I just don't slow down enough to actually know what I'm saying. Um, but uh, but I think that like there is the sense in which. Uh, we we have to ins- yeah we have to insist on the integral contribution of one's consent and cooperation to the offer of grace, but also on the fact that that itself is a grace. Um, so we're not going to permit any kind of Pelagian or semi-Pelagian bootstrapping, but we also have to recognize an integral human contribution. And I think that that integral human contribution is itself God's gift insofar as he's afforded us the dignity of causing, of participating in the drama of salvation as, as agents, as contributors thereunto. Um, so the sense in which like the priority of ours versus mine, I think that there is a priority to mine, but I think the mine is Christ's. And I think uh, that yeah. it well subsequently becomes, you know, appropriatable or, you know, consentable, cooperatable insofar as it is first his. And I think that's like the, the genius of capital grace is that it's it's already been earmarked, right? So like Christ has told the story of yeah. salvation in its entirety and it's for us to appropriate that story insofar as we work out or we fill up what is lacking in his sufferings by the application of that grace and subsequent generation of the church's life. So- Yeah, I think that that's really important to see that that priority of mine in a way- um, St. Thomas talks about something analogous uh, when he's talking about the common good of the whole universe just in the natural order, that um, because God is our exemplar, when we desire our own perfection, we're desiring um, not just our own perfection as it exists in our own form, but also 
And in a way, even more as it exists in our exemplar, because that perfection exists in a secondary way in us and in a primary way in God. So to desire your own perfection, he says, is to desire God more than yourself. Hmm. And if you look at Christ there as the um, agent and exemplar cause of our salvation, then although obviously salvation as it is realized in us is for us desirable, it's good for us. Nevertheless, that's it's realized in us in kind of a secondary way and primarily in Christ. And so we love Christ more than we love ourselves. Um, and that so his saving actions are a common good for us in the sense that they're good for each one of us. And we rejoice in them even more than we rejoice in the good that's in our individual lives. Fathers, I'm keeping an eye on our time and realizing that we've got just a few minutes before I believe Father Gregory has to run to his fourth podcast of the day. God bless you, sir. I've already <laughs> prayed conflict. I'm going to bed after this, but I'm very <laughs> proud of you. Um, but yeah, by way of closing, Father Gregory had mentioned earlier on that you and I have gotten to take some cool trips together over here. And I was thinking about the time that we made that pilgrimage in the footsteps of Blessed Pier Giorgio Frassati up in Piemonte, up in Piedmont in northern Italy, which, by the way, for listeners, turns out that is many footsteps, many, many footsteps, straight up a mountain, verso l'alto, <laughs> not just a metaphor, but uh, no, definitely one of the most beautiful days of my life. But I was thinking about that because when we were at Blessed Pier Giorgio's summer house there, his lovely, lovely niece, Wanda, was talking to us all about her saintly uncle, and she mentioned at one point his fierce opposition to Italian fascism. You remember this? Now, there are all sorts of reasons, right, that one might rightly oppose Italian fascism. But it was interesting why she said Blessed Pier Giorgio opposed it. She said Blessed Pier Giorgio opposed fascism because it expelled Christ Jesus from his rightful place at the center of our political life, of our social life, of our common life together. And that struck me because... That's beautiful, yeah. It's exactly what we're about here at the Josias, is keeping Christ at the center, the center of our lives, not just as isolated private individuals, and not even just at the center of our, you know, quote-unquote spiritual lives, though certainly at the center of our spiritual lives, but but not as if that were just a discrete little section of my life that I give some time to or some energy to and then go back to the rest of my life where Christ isn't at the center, but rather keeping Christ at the center of everything, including our societies, ideally. And we men, being political by nature, and we Thomas know that grace does not destroy nature but perfects it. And so our political lives, Blessed Pier Giorgio saw, are meant to be elevated by grace too, even our politics, is meant to be ordered right to our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we want to thank you, Father Gregory, for coming on today to teach us more about our blessed Lord. Before we wrap up, Father Gregory, where can our listeners find you? Um, you've got a book out. You've got some other podcasts. You do Godsplaining. Where should they look? Right. Yeah, I think Godsplaining is a good place to start. Um, Godsplaining... Although for this particular podcast, what would people genuinely appreciate? I don't know, honestly. I don't know what people like anymore. I contribute to four podcasts, God's Planning, Pints with Aquinas, the Thomistic Institute, and Catholic Classics. Uh, God's Planning is a miscellany. Um, Pints with Aquinas is a miscellany. 
uh, Thomistic Institute is interviewing people who are smarter and holier than I am. And then Catholic Classics is reading books by people who are smarter and holier than I am and making uh, less enlightening commentary thereupon with a brother. Uh, and then I wrote a book called Prudence, Choose Confidently, Live Boldly. Yeah, I suppose that might be the place where people would find most interesting resources for this kind of contemporary conversation of a political sort insofar as, you know, politics is the art of the possible and prudence is the virtue of the practical. There is a lot of uh, interfacing points already right there. Uh, so yeah, those would be, those would be things. Sweet. And Potter Edmund, other than of course, the Josias itself, anything to plug? <laughs> no, nothing in particular. I have a, a, an essay that will be coming out on the Josias very soon about the primacy of the common good. And I'll talk there a little bit about agent causality and exemplar causality. And Sweet. That, look forward that to will it. be coming out soon. Yeah. I hear you're in the States this week for a lecture too. And some are saying possibly the, uh, the high point of your writing career so far. So I hope we're going to get to hear that at some point as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the paper I mean. I, I just gave it oh, as a good. lecture on Friday. Oh, this is great news to me. I didn't know that uh, <laughs> that we were getting it at the Josiahs. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I guess I have to submit it now that I'm no longer the editor. Well, yeah, we'll see, see if it's good enough. <laughs> we'll see if you accept it, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll end it there. Thank you so much to Father Edmund Baldstein and to Father Gregory Pine for coming on the show. Thank you to Joe Barnes for producing this episode and to Jonathan Colbreth for our music. Thank you to all of our listeners and thank you especially to our good benefactors on Patreon. If you enjoyed this episode of the Josiah's podcast and you would like to hear more like it in the future, please head over to patreon.com slash Josiah's to help make that possible. Remember to rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook if you don't already. Check out our law blog, Use at Justitium. And find us, most importantly, at thejosias.com. <laughs>